Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we speak with Winnipeg native and Juno and Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Chantal Kravyazek about her Ukrainian heritage, traveling to watch the country's president address parliament, and meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau to talk about it, and her work to raise funds for those defending the country against the Russian invasion. We find out more about what's behind a never-before-seen heat wave in the eastern Antarctic, the coldest place on the planet. But first, the Liberals and the NDP reach a deal to keep the Liberals in power until 2025 in return for support for NDP priorities, such as a national dental care program. What's behind the deal? Why now? What does it mean? And we find out why the opposition Conservatives are crying foul. Well, we're talking about that deal, that supply and confidence agreement announced today between the Liberals and the NDP that will allow the Liberals ostensibly to stay in power through 2025 in return for prioritizing NDP items, such as a dental care program for low-income Canadians. The Conservative leader, the interim leader, Candace Bergen, described it as a backroom deal, accusing the Liberals of having effectively given the reins of power over to the NDP. So let's try and clear some of this up. I'm joined by Richard Johnston, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Political Science at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for being here tonight. Hi there. I guess first things first, because we've been hearing lots of different descriptions of what exactly this is. Critics may not agree with the move politically, but procedurally, it's just fine, no? That's correct. There's nothing extraordinary going on here. I mean, let me just revise that. It is the first time, actually, (laughs) that a confidence and supply agreement has been struck federally, and the first time in which it has been struck by a party that has a pretty large plurality in the House. The the two precedents are Ontario in 1985, B.C. in 2017. And in each case, the bigger part of the agreement did not have a plurality. The combination of the two gave a majority, and the audience was the lieutenant governor. Yeah, I was going to say, so it does beg the question, because it didn't look like this government was going to fall anytime soon. If you're the Liberals, why make this deal? I'm not 100% sure why, frankly. Hmm. Uh, I suppose that there was some potential for fatigue at constantly negotiating with opposition parties, but the reality of the matter is that they have the whip hand. They had it all along. They have a big number of seats, so so they don't have to rely on any single party to get a majority. Um, They would have been useful, I think, to keep the whip of dissolution in their hands. Uh, And so really... uh, the only thing they get out of this is a, is, is a modest increment in predictability. What do you make of the, I mean, it's a long list of things that they seem to have sat down and at least discussed. I think it was 28 line items, seven or eight categories. Uh, it seems like an awful lot of um, spending, to be honest, even though we know that oil prices are up, so tax revenues are up. Well, it was promising to be a big spending government anyway. Uh, the NDP were going to go along with pretty much anything the liberals proposed so yeah it it, it, it's a left-leaning agreement how could it be otherwise given that the ndp are a party to it the puzzle is why the still is why do the liberals bother for the ndp they don't really get a guarantee because the fact is that no agreement um can override what is legally the prerogative of the crown but effectively the prerogative prerogative of the prime minister to dissolve at least after some reasonable interval. Uh, So fundamentally, the NDP, I mean, the NDP look like big winners because this is their kind of agenda, but really the substantial gain is a 
kind of unenforceable guarantee that there won't be an election for a while. I mean, I remember when the Greens, of course, were in that coalition with the, uh, or that supply, sorry, I did, made yeah, the mistake exactly. myself. They were in that supply and confidence agreement with the, uh, with the BC NDP. And it didn't feel like the Greens got much out of that in the long run. No. In general, in these situations, the bigger party, the governing party, has the whip hand. Uh, and, and history also suggests that at the end of the day, when the next election cur- occurs, I mean, independently of other forces in play, the smaller party tends to lose ground. Happened at the NDP in Ontario in, in um, 1987, and it right. happened to the Greens. What about uh, what's not in there? I mean, clearly there's some pressure now on the Liberals to up defense spending. That's certainly yes. not something that uh, the NDP have never been fully in, in favor of. Where do you think that goes? Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, the, the, the other dimensions to this thing that doesn't seem to be getting much, uh, much um, news or much commentary is that it was basically struck between the prime minister and the leader of the NDP. So if I were a cabinet minister or uh, an NDP backbencher, I'd kind of wonder quite what is going on here because there's some sense in which this ties the hand of the rest of the liberal cabinet. And I'd have thought that actually there would be a lot of debate inside cabinet over the coming years over these priorities. What do you make of, of the opposition reaction to this? I mean, you know, it, it's to be expected that it would be a little over the top, but uh, we've heard some pretty interesting commentary from uh, from the Conservatives today about socialist coalitions and uh, backroom deals and handing the reins of power over the, to the NDP. There's some truth in there somewhere, but, 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 uh, but it can be a little hard to find sometimes. Sure. Well, I mean, First of all, it is a backroom deal. There's no question. But it was about a backroom deal. It was yeah, a backroom not that, deal. Not that that's illegal uh, or that it's unparliamentary. I mean, uh, these situations, minority government situations in particular, always involve bargaining. That's just the way it is. Sometimes the bargaining is with the official opposition. Uh, so, in that sense, but you know, I think if, if Candace Bergen wants to characterize it that way, I think that's actually a, a reasonable rhetorical posture. The notion that it hands power over to the left, well, there's no question that it's a left-leaning agreement, um, and it may be difficult for the Prime Minister to weasel out of some of these things, at least rhetorically difficult, but um, the content, and there's, I would say also there's some surprises in the content of the agreement. I mean, dental care, a federal dental care program? Wait a minute. Um, or is it really that? Uh so, you know, I mean, I think it's over the top, but the no, there's certainly no sense in which this is unconstitutional or somehow inconsistent with either the logic or the rules of the parliamentary game. It'll definitely be. The devil will always be in the details, Richard Johnson, I, pres- I presume. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay, then. Take care. Let's get back to, though, that, uh, that supply and, and confidence agreement negotiated or announced this morning, at least between the NDP and the Liberals, uh, that will see the Liberals ostensibly stay in power until the fall of 2025 with NDP support in return for agreeing to push forward some NDP priorities such as a dental care plan and pharmacare. But why now? The Liberals didn't seem to face any threat of the government falling, particularly from the NDP. The Conservatives are heading into another leadership race. So we thought we'd ask Will Stewart. He's the national lead for public affairs at Hill and Knowlton. He also previously served 
as Chief of Staff to the Honourable John Baird in a variety of portfolios in the province of Ontario. Will Stewart, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. I found the timing of this to be surprising. And I was curious as to, from from your vast experience, where, where, where you saw this coming from and why. Well, you know, it's always, you always never anticipate the timing when something comes out of left field. So if, if from that point of view, I wasn't surprised. But generally speaking, we've been hearing about some type of cooperation between the Liberals and the NDP, even since before Election Day, right? There was a lot of talk about how there was really only two choices, the Conservatives or a coalition of NDP and Liberals. Um, you know, all parties uh, on the, as part of this agreement today, the NDP and the Liberals denied that. But here we are just a few short months later dealing with exactly that, a cooperation agreement in the House of Commons to pass certain key instruments, legislation and priorities for, for the NDP and, and the Liberals as well. So in any trade, you would have to think that both parties think they have something to gain. What do you think the Liberals and the NDP have to gain with this agreement? Yeah, well, I mean, for the Liberals, it certainly gives them it gives them a high degree of certainty, right? They know that they can probably exist for another couple of years. That gives a little bit of certainty to the political powers that be. Frankly, probably puts a chill on the leadership uh, camps that were starting to form within the leader within the Liberal Party uh, as well. From the NDP point of view, they believe that they've got some success on some key policy planks. They're invoking the legacy of of Jack uh, Layton as well, talking about how this is when the NDP are at their best where they can force governments to do uh, certain policy planks that otherwise just aren't possible. So I think both the NDP and the Liberals feel that they've won. The, the Conservatives actually feel like they've won as well. They feel like there's now a coalesced government on the or coalesce, coalescing of political parties on the left, which then gives them one enemy to fight. And if you notice in the press conference today, they were really the only party that was on their front foot. Nothing has changed for them. They're against the spending. They're against the social programs. What has changed is on the other side where the Liberals and the NDP spent most of the time in the press conference today on their back foot, explaining what this deal wasn't and how it would end in on the case of the NDP. And that is where I was surprised, because it didn't feel like the NDP, given their financial situation, the lack of success in the last election, it didn't feel like they were in any position to bring down this government anytime soon. And the Liberals and the NDP could have peacefully coexisted without ever setting themselves up as this united you know, United punching bag, so to speak, for the for the conservatives. Why would they do it then? Yeah, it's it's an excellent question. I mean, being in opposition in Canada's parliamentary system in a Westminster parliamentary system means holding the government to account, pushing forward your policy objectives, and withdrawing your support if you don't think that the government is doing what Canadians or what your political party would like to implement. That's exactly the job description. Uh, so all of this could have easily been done without any type of formal agreement. From the Liberals' point of view, they've got some of their policy planks in there as well. And they get, as I said before, they get that certainty now where they don't really have to worry about pleasing any of the other parties except for the NDP, which was kind of the de facto situation that we had going into it. What we've really done here is combine the two parties to provide a common punching bag for all the other parties to, to attack. You know, we, we saw a supply, a confidence and supply agreement in British Columbia uh, about six years ago when the Greens and the NDP got together to defeat Christy Clark's Liberals, who had in fact won the most seats in that provincial election. Uh, A very different circumstance. But in the end, because the Greens had no cabinet seats, in the end, they really didn't get to influence the government very much. And then the government pulled the plug on them and went to an election. They were, you know, they lost their privileged position. Has the NDP made a deal here that is actually more beneficial to the Liberals in the long run? Well, yeah, I, w- I would argue yes. I mean, as I've said before, like, I don't think there's anything in this deal today or anything I heard from Jagmeet Singh's uh, commentary today that they couldn't have done 
without a deal. I think that is exactly where where most of us are now are now focusing. The NDP for on their side will will actually debate and say like look they weren't going to move on a dental program, they weren't going to move on some uh, emissions targets, they certainly weren't going to move on labor reform and electoral reform without this. So I mean Jagmeet Singh may have a few other little um, pieces of policy in there that he wants to to achieve, but again, at the end of the day, if the Liberals decide not to do these things, Jagmeet Singh is left with the exact same tools that he had before this deal, which is to withdraw his support, push to an election. What he's really done is say that he doesn't have the confidence in his own party and his own leadership to go to an election at this point, should the Liberals not implement the policies in this next uh, budget that he's been pushing for. So, you know, in many ways, the NDP has kind of relegated themselves to the sideline for the next couple of years, with the exception of their regularized meetings behind closed doors with Liberal operatives. The Conservatives really did come out. I mean, swinging would be would be to put it mildly. I mean, the the, the sort of the vociferousness of, of the of the attacks today, even last night, you know, you'd almost think the Liberals and the NDP had done this on purpose to anger people on the other side of the aisle. Um, but what did you make of the what did you make of the reaction to it? Was it over the top or was it do you think it was it was fair? Well, look, there was certainly a lot of anger uh, from conservatives on social media, as well as uh, from the leader today in uh, in her press conference. Um, but I think, you know, the, the conservatives should should take a step back and, and, and think about this just a bit. Right. This gives a couple of years for a new leader to uh, be established and start raising some money. We know that in leadership races, nobody donates to the central party. They all donate to leadership candidates. So this will give a little bit of time for the conservatives to, to build up the war chest. If things go well um, for, the, for the conservatives, they'll be able to position their leader well for the, next, uh, for the next election. And again, this next leader will have a common function bag. He only has, he or she only has one um, entity to attack the NDP liberal government, which is what um, the leader of the Conservatives classified it as today. But I do think the Conservatives risk going a little too far on anger. And we're seeing this a lot in the Conservative leadership race. Anger seems to be the word of the day for the Conservative Party. And that type of anger is, is, is not reflective of an aspirational government in waiting. So they have some reflection to do and some tone to, to think about as well. Do you think it impacts the leadership race? Oh, it has to impact the leadership race. You think that many of these individuals got into the race thinking they could be prime minister in 18 months if they played their cards right. Now it's looking like four years at minimum before they can get a shot at that uh, at 24 Sussex. Who does that discount then? Does it mean, does it mean delay? I mean, I suppose the race will go ahead as planned, uh, but certainly you think it would, it would advantage candidates such as Pierre Polyev over candidates such as Jean Charest if it's a longer term thing. Yeah, I mean, I think those are those are the two uh, front runners as I see them as well, both at different points in their political career, for sure. And I think this will weigh a little bit on Jean Charest's uh, timing in, in his mind. Having said that, he's in now. And if we know anything about Jean Charest, we also know he's a fighter. Uh, so I suspect he, we will not see him withdraw and say, ah, I don't want to do it if it's going to be this long uh, and this far out. Um, so I don't think it will change the current leadership lineup. Does it change future leadership leadership aspirants and those who were maybe considering getting into the race? Absolutely. Does it change campaign strategy? Uh, for sure, for, for every single one of them. Will Stewart, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much. 
As members of Canada's Ukrainian diaspora gathered at Parliament last week to watch a virtual address from Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky talking about the war in his country, Juno and Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Chantal Kreviazek was among them. The Winnipeg-born artist has been a vocal supporter of Ukraine's fight against Russia's invasion. And while she's out on tour now, singing her hits, including Surrounded, Feels Like Home, that you just heard and before you, she's also raising funds to help those defending the country. She's no stranger to activism and charitable work. Kriyazek and her husband, Rain Maida, were appointed as members of the Order of Canada uh, for their charitable, charitable and humanitarian work in about 10 years ago by David Johnson. So to talk more about the impact of the war on her, the work that she's doing to try to raise awareness and to raise money for those defending Ukraine, I'm joined now by Chantal Kriyazek. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is really interesting. I know, I mean, I grew up sort of as an Irish, quote, Irish Canadian. You know, it's something I didn't think mm. about a whole lot as a kid. But my, mm. you know, my, my, my grandparents, would t- it was sort of part of our family. I was wondering yeah. a bit about, about, about your Ukrainian heritage and how you, how yeah. you looked at yeah. it growing up. Well, you know, it's interesting. I spent probably the first three quarters of my life feeling pretty Ukrainian, uh, mostly, right? Because, I mean, I knew I was Indigenous on my mom's side, but we were raised to um, think we were ashamed of it. Now, we do know, like my great-grandmother was an Elkhorn residential school survivor. And so, um, you know, my by the time my grandmother had her children, obviously, it, it, it would have been all about, sur- it was survivalist, right? So, right. Um, so we were going to just not talk about the fact that most of my family looked, you know, either somewhat or pure indigenous or, or we were just going to be, you know, ashamed of it or whatever it was. It it, it was, it was really sad, but, but I was also like, I was raised very Ukrainian, um, because my dad was fully Ukrainian. See on my mom's side, we, we had the maternal, uh, grandmother stuff that was indigenous but my grandfather was ukrainian his last name was Woloschuk. so my mom's maiden name is Woloschuk. so um so we were we were mostly ukrainian you know grandpa was Gigi, uh Gigi peter and and it was when we talked about my grandmother it was baba right and then my dad spoke in ukrainian and some russian and to his friends and and community and i and i grew up on the duja dobras and the chikais and you know um and the adespaches and all the all the things and so um and our food and our 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 lifestyle was very ukrainian my you know my family we were at the farmhouse every weekend uh you know north of the city we were we were ukrainians you know and so yeah i think like you you sort of took that for granted that's just who you were and then the taboo of the maternal grandmother's side and all the confusion and and kind of all the the sort of chaos of that it it absorbed a lot more of my identity in the form of an identity crisis so it was clear it was so clear on my dad's side so we didn't really have to or on my on on the other side of of the, the other sides of the what was it like? And, and given that I can, because I watched it and I've been spent time in the House of Commons. It's not a particularly raucous place most of the time, but it was certainly a very, felt like a very emotional place to be when President Zelensky addressed, addressed Parliament. And you were there. Yeah. I think what was the most powerful, to be honest with you, because pretty much most people were watching it on a screen. 
I did like being being in the gallery, in the chamber, but um, sitting next to Anna and her her father Boris and her mother that her mom and dad had just had just come you know they'd walked overnight through in the cold uh, with just just bags on their back you know lovely retired people who had a nice apartment with paintings on the wall and a library the way that the father described it to me it just broke my heart and then to be suddenly here. Um, you know, in their daughter's house, a single mom, um, it was heartbreaking. And I didn't expect that. I didn't expect for that sort of detour on that little trip. Um, but it certainly gave me clarity in terms of what I wanted to talk to Justin about when I did sit with him after I was honored to go and sit with prime minister. And, um, you know, that was Anna asked me, will you please call me and tell me like, how do I know my parents will have some services? Cause I can't, I can't pay for them. I don't, right. I can't afford that. Her parents and had left, was, her parents had fled Ukraine, right? That, that was the, yeah, yes, yeah, just, fled. just then. Yeah, yeah. Just, just then. Yeah. Just then they just arrived. So, you know, they were just shell shocked in, in that moment. So anyway, that was really powerful. Um, and I'll carry that story in my heart forever. I'm still unpacking it. You sat down with the prime minister after that. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What what did you what did you want to convey? What did you want to tell them? Well, I had that concern. What are we doing for you know services wise? Mm-hmm. Um, and he reassured me, and I was able to reassure reassure Anna, and mm-hmm. that was really comforting. Um, you know, and then of course I wanted to get to the bottom of like what's happening here. Like, what are we doing? Like, how are we helping? And it and it does sound like it's it's a problem. You know, it doesn't sound like it's it's black and white. And I really just, uh, I feel that, you know, Putin and his system have to be dismantled. So I don't know. I'd like to see, I'd like to see that be the solution. And obviously I'm not, you know, I would do, Hey, prime minister, can you, you know, can we figure out how to take this guy out? I mean, he's not going to talk to me about that. There's really nothing else to talk about. That's what has to happen because Ukrainians aren't going to go anywhere. They're not giving Mary a pool. They're not giving, they're not giving up. And, you know, Putin is a Hitler in the sense of this, this system of propagating misinformation to people and, and, uh, people are listening. He, he has like, like the Nazis, he has a group of, of people who are with it. You've seen the effects of this already. I know you went to Jordan to see, to meet with the, with those who had fled a war, a very similar yeah. situation yeah. in Syria. In Syria. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you yeah. know what the impact is when yeah. families are it, torn apart, right? Yeah. It's, it's brutal because, you know, my heart aches, the Poles have been, the, the, the Polish people have been so incredible and yet we're putting them in an impossible position. I watched as Jordanians, you know, turned on their, their Muslim neighbors. They first embraced them, but then it became impossible to accommodate them. By the time I was there, you know, the Jordanian kids went to school in the morning and the Syrian kids went to school in the afternoon. There, It had become a race war. It had become completely ugly. And, um, that's not right. This is the case. You know, I mean, Putin, he's got a crystal ball. He knows, he knows this is what happens. So again, he's got to go. Sorry. I'm with Lindsey Graham on one thing. Putin's got to go. I'm speaking with Chantal Kravyatsik. We're talking about Ukraine, um, an important part of the world for, for Chantal, given her, her, her heritage, as well as recent events. Uh, she went to parliament in Ottawa to see president Zelensky deliver his address virtually met with the prime minister afterwards. After this, I want to talk a bit about, I know you're very close with your family. You're very close to your kids. I was really 
curious mm. to know what it's been like trying to explain what's happening in Ukraine to your sons. And we'll get to that right after this. I'm back with singer-songwriter Chantal Kavyatsuk. We're talking about Ukraine, uh, an important part of Chantal's heritage, and also an important part of what, the kind of work you've been doing of late uh, with War Child and so on. I was curious to know, I know you're very close to your family. You know, your, your family's very important to you. Your kids are growing up. They're older now. They're teens, I gather. Uh, mm-hmm. How have you tried to talk about this with them, given how you, know, you are about it? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I feel like we just watch these kids struggle through the pandemic and they'll never know what it's like to grow up as a teen, not in a pandemic, but we know. Right. And so that was painful. It's been painful to not see the kids developing, you know, normally and, 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 and socializing. And that's been so hard. And so this war, this invasion, um, I feel a little bit protective of the kids. I do. And I'm trying to, you know, my husband sees me. My husband is, is not Ukrainian. He is Italian and English. And, um, and so he sees me being very proactive. Um, He sees me being um, emotionally invested. And I think we're a great couple in the sense of how we pass the baton to each other. And right now, he happens to be at home with the kids and I'm out on the road. So it kind of has worked out really well where, you know, when the kids talk to me, they know the work I'm doing. They're seeing my social media. They know. Okay. And they know they're Ukrainian. They know their roots, but, but rain is there in, in his way. He is just perpetuating some development, some normal development after all this pandemic stuff. And I think that's really good. I think, I think even for me, there needs to be a balance. Like I really can't watch the news anymore. I just, I mean, my heart's broken and that's debilitating. I have to stay focused, right? I have to stay focused as someone who is um, helping defenders. I, I have to stay focused as, as an artist who is, you know, welcoming people into, you know, my, my world in the evening and giving them, transformation or comfort or whatever it is they've come come for to my show and then as a mom like i just can't be debilitated i know you're on tour so it must be different um yeah these days but i remember reading something you said once about having a platform as an artist you once wished it was so big that you could do anything possible for people who are who are suffering through either fleeing fleeing a war fighting a Uh war uh-huh. Um, and then you said, I've learned that it's not how much power you have, it's what you do with it. And I was curious yeah. to know right now, given how emotionally invested you are in this mm. particular mm. conflict as well, mm. what mm. you see your role is, what you think you can do and what, what's the best use of, of all that energy. Well, I do think it's really important, right. To not cut your nose, to spite your face. So if someone comes to my show and they're coming to see Chantal Kriviazic, that sings feels like home and before you and jet plane, you know, give it to them. I don't want to alienate anybody. That's not helping. That's not going to the table. There are people who just are not as personally invested in this war as I am. And I respect that, right? I wasn't as personally invested in some other things that others are. And, and that's life. I know that. But this is, you know, I believe this is slightly different. I, I, I do. I think that it would be, you know, and I have heard people say it's hard to know, right? Cause I'm Ukrainian, but I have heard people say right now, you know, we're all Ukrainian. 
And I thought that was beautiful. I was like, okay, so I'm not, it's not just me. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that we're almost, you know, a million and a half in, in Canada, um, of, of Ukrainian descent. So, so, but I do have to, um, I have to sort of not be manipulative, but I have to be smart. I have to, um, respect everyone who comes through the door and sits down in the theater that, that, uh, they they leave with their cup full and what does that look like despite the fact that i have an intention here right now right so you know i'm 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 proud to say i'm i'm someone who's quite funny live and and my audience knows that so when they come they're expecting to laugh so i make sure that they laugh um and and my audience also expects to uh, to be moved and so they're moved, but I don't want to move people to way to where they run away, right? Like not move them that far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess um, it's, a, it's a delicate balance, right? It is. It really is. But I'm, I'm, I'm there for them. I'm not there for me. That's my job. So yeah. that's what I stay focused on. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with singer-songwriter, Juno and Grammy Award winner Chantal Kavyatsek. We're talking about the war in Ukraine. Um, Chantal went to see President Zelensky speak at Parliament. She spoke to the Prime Minister afterwards uh, of Ukrainian descent. Clearly, this, like many, for many other Ukrainian Canadians, this, or Canadians of Ukrainian descent, I should say, heritage, this has hit very close to home. Do you feel like there's, I mean, I, I know you've talked about your songwriting in the past as, as you'd like it to be very personal, very real, even almost reflexive to some extent. Do you feel like you can write about this? It's interesting you say that. I've, I've thought to myself, oh boy, I should be writing music. What am I going to say? Every time I go to open my mouth to write something, it hasn't felt quite right. There was one moment when I did start to write um, something and I have, um, you know, I, let's see. Let's see if, if it's a month from now or a year from now or 10 years from now. I don't know. I mean, um, it's overwhelming and it's surreal. It's I can't believe this is happening. I think I'm in a bit of shock and. Um, I feel quite disrupted, you know, so uh, we'll see. I don't really have a, (laughs) I don't have a solid answer for you on that one, but I do know that I have always been quite honest in my music and, and stuff just kind of comes up. Right. So I, I don't, I, I do suspect it will. Has the touring been at least I guess in many ways, therapeutic to some extent. And I mean that in the nicest of ways, something to take your mind off all that's going on and just concentrate on what you love to do. That's one piece. It has been therapeutic, but I got to tell you, the other piece of it is that I'm away from my family and that's helping because I'm able to do this very important work, raising awareness about the initiative Unite with Ukraine. So um, I don't know that I would be able to get quite this amount of work done. It's great to be on the road and have a platform. You have more of a platform when you're on the road. I don't know if people would be talking to me in interviews, you know, I, I, just the amount of social media surrounding a tour. It's fantastic. And having an audience in front of you to, to tell them about it. It's incredible. So I think that's been the best part about being on the road right now. Tell me a bit about, as a last question, I was going to ask you a bit about Unite with Ukraine and just to explain mm-hmm. to, to our listeners what, what it's all mm-hmm. about. So, you know, we're arming defenders. So um, one supply kit probably costs around $2,500. And that would include um, a level four bulletproof vest, a helmet, night vision goggles, and the medical emergency medical supplies, supplies including a tourniquet. Um, tourniquets. So 
you know, one, one level four bulletproof vest can cost anywhere from 900 to $1,500. So just to put it into context for people, you know, when you're giving, um, go to unite with Ukraine.com, you know, pull together 10 people and give 50 bucks. You've just gotten a vest for a defender. I've been on communications on group texts on WhatsApp and so on and so forth. Um, where the, the initiative is getting, uh, these, these, this equipment, these supplies to defenders in Ukraine. And I'm, I'm, I'm reading as, as routing and is, is being supplied and street names and, and, and locations in, in Ukraine. It's mind boggling. I, I can't understand how, you know, I'm suddenly in this episode of, of Homeland or something like that. So this is very real and the work they're doing is, 100 it's for sure and i feel really good about about um committing to this for now because look did i i'm the work i've done prior to this was the opposite it was about you know uh rehabilitating kids or or you know um retroactive uh you know education or um getting getting skill sets to 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 uh women um in conflict zones post war um this is the opposite. This is, I, I can't even understand how this is happening. It's like arms dealing or something, but it's, it's not, it's not lethal. Obviously the, the supplies we're giving, but it just, it's very different. It's very uncomfortable, but I feel that it's the right thing to do right now. I, I'm not, I'm not interested in, in profiteering conglomerates. Normally I try to edit myself, but look, if you're giving to some big, massive organization, that money's not even going to Ukraine right now. Let's be real got to be grassroots about this. You got to know that you're getting supply there, there's a, you know, um, that it's getting to the people who really need it. Um, so, you know, working with, um, Unite with Ukraine is great because they're affiliated with the, the Ukrainian world Congress. They've been around forever and they know what they're doing. And so, um, you know, they know the region, they know tactical, um, maps and all that good stuff. So it's, it's good. Chantal Kraviatsa, thank you so much for speaking with me tonight. I appreciate your perspective on this. And obviously, um, good luck on your tour. And good luck with all the initiatives that you've been working on of late. Thank you very much. I saw this fascinating article the other day. I knew I had to find out a bit more about it. Eastern Antarctica is known as the coldest place on Earth. But earlier this month, a permanent weather station on the Antarctic Plateau recorded the warmest temperature in the more than 65 years it's been operating. Temperatures at the research station were 47 degrees Celsius above average, a heat heat wave unlike any observed before it, as I mentioned. A large part of East Antarctica across it, temperature anomalies are close to 30 degrees above average Celsius for this time of year. So joining me now with more is David Mikhailchuk. He's a research meteorologist. Antarctic and meteorologist. I'm going to get this wrong again. Joining me is David Mikolaychuk. He's a research meteorologist, Antarctic and meteorological research and data center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Sorry for fumbling around. Thanks for joining us, David. Oh, hi, Ben. It's great to be here. I have to say it was just one of those stories where the headline catches you completely off guard. It was, it was an American um it was an American newspaper, but really, I think that what I saw was sort of the, a heat wave that hit the coldest part of the earth, 47 degrees Celsius above average at one point. Um, it must have caught everyone off guard. 
Yeah, it is. It's always amazing to hear the word heat applied to the Antarctic because, yes, as everyone um, is usually the way they think about the continent is that it's just snow and ice and it's always cold. But just as any place on Earth, it does have variations in temperature. And uh, hearing about this um, incredible increase in temperature and the incredible warmth uh, over Antarctica was indeed pretty amazing. Um, it's something that we've that's been noted before, uh, pretty pretty large increases in temperature, but this one is uh, especially dramatic. Yeah, how dramatic how dramatic has it been? Well, from from some of the sources that I've seen, uh, it's been um, pretty like it's never been seen before um, in this region. So this uh, occurred in East Antarctica. East Antarctica is a very tall dome of snow and ice uh, reaching up to four kilometers above sea level there. Uh, so when really warm temperature, when temperatures get really warm there, it's, it's very noteworthy. The, I'm not sure on the exact statistics and specifics of exactly how warm this um, event was, but I, I'm pretty sure it was a, a, a couple standard deviations, at least above normal. Um, so very, very rare. What, um, it's an anomaly, I gather, at least. I mean, but is it, is it common to see such a huge spike in temperatures? I know this, is, this has never happened before, but do you see that sort of up and down in that part of the world? You do. Um, and actually, especially in wintertime. Uh, and so I know this, this happened in the, at the beginning of autumn in Antarctica, since they're in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the sun is starting to set there. And in portions of Antarctica, the sun will be below the horizon um, until, and it won't come back up until August and September. And so actually when the sun sets, there becomes a lot of, a large, a lot of various temperatures. And so the temperatures can get really cold, um, especially when there's very calm atmospheric conditions over the continent. Um, and so that in the fall and winter, uh, temperatures will start to cool a lot for a few days, but then you'll get a system similar to the one that caused this really incredible increase in temperature that will bring some cloud cover into the region and the temperatures will start to warm up pretty quickly. Um, and so that, that those, uh, Increases in temperature usually get to like 10 to 20 degrees Celsius. Um, I don't remember that exact conversion to Fahrenheit, but, um, but yeah, when it, so for this uh, instance where it got 40, uh, the increase was 47 degrees Celsius, it was an especially strong um, ridge that brought in uh, a lot of cloud cover and warm air to Antarctica. You're welcome to use Celsius with a Canadian audience. Obviously, I think we understand both, but Celsius Celsius certainly works. Um, Excellent. <laughs> there you go. Does that does it cause any dramatic changes at all to like a week a week long heat wave? What are the implications of that for the coldest part of the world? Mm-hmm. It it varies by where you are on the continent, and so this heat wave uh, it reached from the seas, the ocean to the north of Antarctica. Um, and reached all the way inland, uh, going further south towards the pole. And so the, um, these incredible temperature increases over the ice sheet inland on the continent of Antarctica, still the temperature remained below zero degrees Celsius. And so there probably wasn't any surface melting of the snow there. And so in terms of like melting the ice sheet over the continent, it probably didn't do much there. But 
this warm air started north uh, and reached the coast of the continent and then reached inland. And so there has there was noted melting that occurred uh, on of the ice uh, of the ice sheets at the coast of Antarctica uh, due to this. And so if you are to have such uh, such flow and such southerly flow from the warmer northern latitudes north of Antarctica, that brings in this warm air, um, and especially for a sustained amount of time, then you increase the chances that you're going to have temperatures above zero degrees Celsius uh, near the coast, and therefore then you'll get some uh, ice melts there. And so, uh, uh, flow pattern flow patterns such as this can have an impact on the ice sheet um, of the continent. It also can have an impact on, uh, and, and it can have an impact on the ice sheet in terms of melting. It can also have an impact in terms of uh, bringing snowfall. And so actually, you might get some melting in one portion of the ice sheet on Antarctica, but you might get some uh, snow accumulation on another portion. And so there's always that balance between um, warm air causing melting, but also bringing in cloud cover and causing snowfall and precipitation at the surface. And so if the temperatures don't get above freezing where the snow falls, then it'll just increase the um, snow depth and the ice pack thickness. Well, I mean, you work at something called the Antarctic and Meteorological Research and Data Center. What have we been seeing happen in the Antarctic over the past little bit? I mean, what, is, what does your research tell you and, and, uh, and where are we with, with it? Because we, we obviously, it's such a fascinating part of the world that so few people have been to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at our uh, research center, we, one of our main projects we have is an automatic, nether, automatic weather station network that we manage on the continent. Um, and so this pro- that program, the AWS program, as we call it, uh, began in 1980. And ever since, we've been increasing the number of stations on the continent and managing, that, managing them. Um, and so they gather, uh, they record uh, basic weather variables like temperature, pressure, wind speed, and direction. Um, at most of the sites, and they're spread throughout the continent of Antarctica. And so since some of these locations have been installed for more than 30 years, we've been able to get some accurate climatologies of different regions of the continent. And uh, there was a paper that uh, came out a few years back that studied the temperature trends at Bird Station um, using our uh, AWS data from Bird AWS. And this is located in the, about in the center of the West Antarctic ice sheet. Um, and so that is, that's the East Antarctic ice sheet, as I mentioned before, can get up to around four kilometers above sea level. The West Antarctic ice sheet is a little lower um, above sea level, maybe to like one and a half to two kilometers. Uh, so it's still kind of high up, but uh this research, we had noted that there's actually been some warming uh, occurring at, in, the, in West Antarctica uh, at Bird. And so in that region, we've noticed some warming. There have also been some interesting uh, research about uh, long-duration cold events at South Pole. And so while we have some warming occurring in one portion of the continent, there are uh, occasionally some periods of long duration cold spells uh, in other portions of the continent. So there's the, there's definitely different weather regimes and climate regimes uh, that we've noticed throughout the whole continent of, of Antarctica. It's remarkable that you have that many monitoring stations, You're, the ability just to keep track of what's happening there. It must be the amount mm-hmm. of information and data that gets turned out of that must be, must be phenomenal. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if, uh, sorry, if I may mention, no, go ahead. I don't think I, I think, Maybe I did. Uh, we have uh, about 60 AWS installed on the continent currently. Well, and, and you monitor those all the time? 
Yep. Yep. We, uh, we get the data uh, real time and that's posted on our website. And we also have uh, some members of our team quality controlling that data. And so uh, our goal and um, pretty much every, every researcher's goal is to make their data publicly available. Um, and so that anyone and everyone can see it and use it um, and uncover the amazing uh, weather and climate features that we can, uh, that we can see on the continent. Obviously not a place that people are going to. So you're not providing this information for people's sort of personal use, but what is, what is the, um, I mean, personal use in terms of them traveling there, but what is, sure. wh- who is the consumer of this information and what, what do you hope to share in terms of uh, what do you hope to find essentially? What do you hope to track? Yeah. Well, we, we get a lot of um, th- the general consumers are different scientists and researchers who are trying to supplement their research, uh, whether it be, weather research or climate research or um, glaciology or biology, um, supplement that research with accurate weather data and uh, observational in situ data. Um, So uh, there are also a lot of, there's, our data gets input into numerical weather, climate model, weather and climate models. And so those models can use our observational data uh, to uh, as input into their models to make sure that they're getting an accurate representation of the atmosphere at a certain time. And we do also get uh, some people who just like to see how the weather changes and varies in different parts of the world. And so when they see the Antarctic and they see our uh, automatic weather station data listed, they're like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. I'm going to plot up that data and just kind of see what it looks like. So it kind of it kind of runs the gamut of uh, who uses our data. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And and how do you service more than sixty weather stations in the middle of absolutely as nowhere as you can be on this earth? Really, <laughs> we we send uh, two to four usually uh, lucky people every year um, to go down for a few months and do day trips to our weather sites. And so we will typically deploy to Antarctica, um, and we do this through the uh, United States Antarctic Program. Uh, we typically deploy from around November uh, through February. And so that's during their, uh, their summertime. And so it's 24 hours of sunlight um, here in Madison, you know, at that time of year, it's our winter. And so we're uh, dealing with the, the short days, long nights, and it's cold. And sometimes when we're, we're, uh, our group is stationed, uh, based at McMurdo station. And a lot of times it's actually warmer there than it is in Madison. And so some people will get jealous of me when I go to Antarctica because I go there to escape the cold. Yeah, it certainly would be counterintuitive to think you'd want to take a vacation from uh, from North America to go to Antarctica to get away from the uh, from the cold temperatures and the short nights. David Mikolechek, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. And thank you very much, Ben. 